Hey everybody, Pierre Quinn here, and you're listening to episode 138 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Martha Saunders, president of the University of West Florida. Now, before we jump into that conversation with Dr. Saunders, I want to thank you so much for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast. You listen to it. You rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You share it on social media. Every time you put a little bit of effort, every time you put a little bit of your influence behind the Leading Wild Green podcast, it allows us to reach more people who need support on their leadership journey. And I want to thank you for that. Can you believe that 2020 is almost over? I know some of you are thinking, I can't wait for the clock to strike midnight and for us to transition to 2021. And it's been rough on a lot of us. There's also been quite a few opportunities for some of us. And if you haven't yet, I need you to take some time to reflect, grab the journal, maybe grab some crayons and markers, maybe grab the video camera or the voice recorder and begin to reflect on everything that you've experienced in 2020 and then begin to think about what's going to happen in 2021. Now, some of you are already in this mode. You're vision casting, got vision boards, strategic plans, and you're ready to go. And some of you haven't started yet, but that's okay. And I want to support you in your leadership transition from one year to the other. PRCQuinn.com slash coaching. That's PRCQuinn.com slash coaching. And sign up for my courageous leadership coaching intensive. I want to spend some time with you helping you review all that you've gone through as a leader in 2020 and then strategize on how we can leverage that for greater leadership success in 2021. Hop over to PRCQuinn.com slash coaching and sign up for my courageous leadership coaching intensive. Okay, today's featured conversation is with Dr. Martha Saunders, president of the University of West Florida. President Saunders has worked in higher education for over three decades, serving in academic and leadership roles in universities in Florida, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Mississippi. Her vision for UWF is for it to grow beyond its beginnings as a regional university and be seen as a leader in innovation and cutting edge academic programs. President Saunders is passionate about creating innovative solutions to deal with the dynamic challenges facing higher education today. Here's my conversation with Dr. Martha Saunders. I'm excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading While Green podcast by Dr. Martha Saunders. Dr. Saunders, thanks for being my guest today. It's my pleasure. So... Talk to me as a little girl growing up was college presidency, university presidency. Was was that ever on like your dream or wish list growing up? No. A lot of my students ask me that. They say, you know, hey, when you were in college, did you think about being a university president? And the answer was always no, because they didn't make women presidents of anything. Mm. When I was in college, I'm I'm that old. I'm that generation. So it never occurred to me that that was uh, a, a level I could achieve at the time. So you said, you know, back when you were growing up, that you know, women weren't the president of anything. Let's talk about today. Let's talk about the 
the fraternity, as it were, of women university presidents? What's the size of that? If I could call it a fraternity, what's the size of that that group? You know, the last I checked, we're still at about 20 percent. And with a greater number in community college, uh, lesser numbers at research institutions, uh, and the numbers were growing and they seem to have plateaued hmm. right around that, uh, as well as in corporate world too. And I- I've wondered, I've wondered about that. <laughs> hmm. And I'm wondering, uh, is, is it just a, a part of a normal ebb and flow that's going to happen uh, as uh, leaders emerge? Or is it a sign of that's all there is? And hmm. uh, very curious. Hmm. So let's go back. Talk to me about your higher education experience gr- growing up, undergrad, grad work, PhD. What was the journey like for you? Well, in my my own personal education, I went to school um, in my hometown. Uh, I, I had uh, scholarships other places. Uh, Going out of state was not in the in the cards for me. I we you know I needed money, <laughs> and I needed to stay in state where I could get scholarships. But uh, at the very last minute, almost I my goal was to get out. Hmm. My goal hmm. I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to get out of college and see the world. It, you know. I, yeah. they, big world out there and I want to get out there and see it. And so at the very last minute, I said, you know, if I stay in my hometown and, and go to school here, I can finish sooner. And I finished in two years and two quarters. I was 19 years old, which was about the dumbest thing Hmm. I've ever done. (laughs) In those days, I couldn't even vote at 19. You had to be 21 Hmm. then. And uh, so there, and there weren't a whole lot of opportunities, but I did get out and I did see the world. Uh, and so that was good. And, uh, and I thought I was done with education and then opportunities came up. My, my degrees are 10 years apart. Okay. <laughs> so 10 years later, uh, I got my master's degree, uh, at the university of Georgia. Uh, and then 10 years after that, my doctorate, uh, and my doctorate came I. I was invited to be on the faculty here at the University of West Florida. I was teaching adjunct uh, and I was invited to be on the faculty. And um, they said, well, but you're going to have to get a doctorate. And, you know, mm-hmm. coming from ignorance, I said, well, you know, how hard can that be? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and uh, and so I I worked full time, like many people do, and got my doctorate while I was teaching at, at the university. So. Where's, where's home? Where's hometown for you? Uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, I was okay. uh, born down in the swamps, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Honey Island Swamp. And when I was two, my family moved to Hattiesburg. Okay. Okay. And my, that's where my dad had grown up. My dad is from Tylertown. Okay. I know that well. <laughs> so, so talk to me. What did you study in undergrad? And grad school, and what made you pursue uh, that particular area? Well, my my passion and my interest has always been in communication, uh, and I started as a journalist, journalism major. You know, there 
well, if you know Mississippians, there's always a story there. There's always a story. (laughs) I got a story. Uh, And so I started out as a journalism major uh, at Southern Miss, where I was. And, uh, uh, but as sometimes happens, the department got into a fuss and several of the faculty quit. And so they canceled all my classes Hmm. for some semester. And remember, I was wanting to get out. And so Mm -hmm. I said, look, I can't. I can't hang around and mess around with you people. I've got to get out. And so I changed my major to French. And uh, and it wasn't as foolish as it sounds, mm-hmm. uh, because at the time, the New Orleans trademark, international trademark was brand new. And they mm-hmm. were hiring uh, language majors to serve as uh, translators or bilingual. Then they called them bilingual secretaries. <laughs> and so that was my plan. And, uh, so, but I, I never, it bothered me. I never got over not going into communication. Hmm. And so 10 years later, I got my master's in journalism, uh, at university of Georgia. And then my doctorate is communication, theory and research. So I got, I got back into the field. I, I knew this was going to be such a, a, a good conversation to have as a person who has a master's in communication as well. And a passion for communication theory I, I, I said, this, this conversation with Dr. Saunders is going to be, is going to be going to be great. So th- it's one thing to become a university professor to move from adjunct to full-time to professor working through tenure. It's another thing to be a university administrator. How did that conversation start? Well, that, you know, that's, it's, it is quite different. And uh, for me, it was just, it felt like a smooth evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everything I did, uh, and I was kind of late in the game coming into higher ed. I, you know, I had done, I was hired, quote, from industry. I had worked in, in the mm-hmm. field. And so, uh, but, and so when I was a faculty member, I remember thinking, you know, I could do this every day for the rest of my life and die happy. I, mm-hmm. I love this. Mm-hmm. And then something else came up. <laughs> and then they invited me to be uh, an honors director. Well, that was sort of a quasi administrative teaching role. Mm-hmm. And so I became the honors director, which was an associate dean position. And I thought, oh, man, I love this. I could do this every day the rest of my life, and I'll die happy. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> and then they offered me a deanship. <laughs> and, uh, and I became dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, and again, you know, you're, it, it evolves. And, um, and, I, and I really... Uh, loved that work because I still got to work with students and I still got to work with young faculty or, you know, faculty as they were moving through their careers. And uh, I think it's always been important to me as I've gotten opportunities to make sure Mm -hmm. I'm providing them for the one behind me. It doesn't do you any good if there's no depth on the bench, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, and so I, I have told the story often, but, while I was a dean, uh, at the time, m- much of, many of the faculty, we all ate in the cafeteria. And the faculty, the, you know, we'd all sort of sit together at big tables. And one day, the president of the university and I happened to be the last two at the table. And he was always very interested in what his leadership was doing. And 
uh, was very complimentary. And he said, you know, you're doing uh, good work over there in the college. And he said, you, you'd be a good president. Uh, hmm. And nobody ever said, and he said, and, and, you know, and I was like, oh, go on, you know. And he said, no, really. He said, but this is the only place you've ever been. And hmm. we taught you all we can teach you. And you need to go some other places and you need to learn some other things, which was the most generous advice anybody could have given anybody. Because six months later, he was out. uh, I was gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was a provost uh, at a a university in Georgia. And uh, and then three years after that, I had my first presidency. And it, it probably took him 10 minutes to encourage me. But it made all the difference in uh, in how I saw myself as you know, uh, you know, a possible <laughs> president, uh, and having somebody that sort of believed in me. Mm. That that's an amazing story. So many parts of that that I, I want to pick at just a little bit. The first one is the for individuals in higher ed faculty staff, administrators, what's the value? What's the, and I know we're in the middle of COVID and all of the implications of that, but in times not like these, what's the value of being present at those tables? Those, those, instead of, you know, just eating at your desk or eating at a restaurant, what's the value of being visible in that regard? You know, it makes a huge difference. One, uh, first of all, we we all have a tendency to live in silos, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 it's even worse once you you know once you're on a faculty, you're with people who are not a whole lot different from you, you know, discipline wise. Uh, you're with other communication faculty, and this way, sometimes it's just you just chit chat over mm-hmm. how what's life like over in your college and and in your department and how is your department chair handling this or that one of the things mm-hmm. we do here at UWF we have leadership programs uh, we call it lead we have one for faculty and then we have one for staff and the whole point it's a year long Mm-hmm. Select. They're nominated and selected a very small group, maybe a dozen or so. Lots of leadership opportunities, but the most important thing we teach them is what it takes to run a university. What you know? How do you how do you build a building? How do you mm-hmm. recruit students? Uh, faculty don't always know that, and then uh, staff who work, let's say, in enrollment, don't know what facilities challenges are. So this way they get a much, they get an education about our industry. And then they go back to their departments, just much better informed. Uh, And I think the more we understand the industry we're in and how, you know, how everything connects, uh, it it just makes us all better. (laughs) And and, uh, so that, that has been a very rewarding thing for us. How is it for you fighting through the cognitive dissonance that can happen? Because there are some people who maybe they've been at the table with a university uh, university president and someone said, you know, you would make a good administrator. You would make a good president. And for them, 
that line of thinking is so inconsistent from their previous experiences that sometimes people maybe even Mm self-sabotage because they can't see themselves in that way. How do you wrestle with it? And how do you help others wrestle with the dissonance that could happen? You know, that that's a very astute observation. And there are a couple of answers to that. One is to give them is to, to find ways to give people opportunities that's not a life sentence. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, uh, you know, for example, uh, maybe a three year, we, we do a lot of, we call them administrative fellows. Mm -hmm. Some people call that code for working for free, but, (laughs) but we will tap a faculty member uh, to come and, and work in the provost office uh, given and, for, and it's for a finite period of time, so they don't have to do it forever. Mm-hmm. But some some of them really don't like it and say this good this is great for y'all, but I don't want any part of it. But it does give them a taste of what that work is like. But on the flip side, you know, people know themselves, mm-hmm. and they know their own preferences and their own comfort level. And I I had a, a department chair one time, just one of the most talented people I've ever, ever appointed. And I was so high on him and he hated it. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, and, and because he hated it so much, you know, it sort of rubbed off on his faculty. And so he was telling me all the reasons he was going to quit. And I was trying to not let him do that. But he he said the most profound thing. He said, you know, Martha, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Mm. And so I think, you know, there is sort of a double-edged sword. We yeah. I'm good at spotting talent. Yeah. Uh, I can spot talent, but I, I do rely on the people I'm recruiting to say, you know, I, I know myself well enough that mm-hmm. this is not for me. And I, I, I have noticed lately, I think our, you know, as, as I, you know, people are more insightful, you know, they know themselves better. Um, and, and they're not quick to plunge into maybe something that's not right for them. And I, I, I respect that. I didn't always, but hmm. I do. There, there's this mindset and it doesn't just happen in higher ed, but in a lot of, a lot of professions where the new employee, the new faculty member, the new staff place these unicorn-like unrealistic expectations on themselves. What's your advice when a person is, you know, I remember standing in the classroom for the first time and realizing I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> what, what do you, what do you, how do you advise? Or how have you counseled? those in your career who, you know, they have a, the passion, they have the aptitude, they, they have the desire, um, maybe for an academic role or administrative role. But that first, that first pushback of, you got a learning curve, mm-hmm. sweetheart, you got a learning curve. You, you have to learn. You're not going to be amazing. And the first time they get knocked down, well, how do you help kind of nurse them back to a sense of reality, but also a sense of optimism? Uh, you know, of course we, I, I like to keep people encouraged, mm-hmm. but I tell 
I tell them, you know, I'm going to let you step in a pothole, but I'm not going to let you go over a cliff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's a responsibility of mm-hmm. a supervisor. Yeah. Let them make mistakes. And, and talk about those, you know, in faculty world, it may be the, uh, the, the student evals aren't what they should be. Mm-hmm. And not let's not get defensive about it. Let's take a look. How much of this is real? How much okay. of this is deserved? How much of this is just disgruntled students? <laughs> you know what? And and what could you do to change that? And so I think uh, having candid conversations about, you know, how much of that was deserved, <laughs> and mm-hmm. how much of that was not, and uh, and uh, in a safe environment. Uh, but then be there to say, look, you're getting ready to go over a cliff and I need you to not do that. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so that's paying attention. We, we, and I, you know, my, my experience is higher ed, so I don't know every industry, mm-hmm. but we do have a tendency to throw people in the deep end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned before, there are people who are really good faculty members. Uh, does that necessarily mean they're going to be a good administrator? Uh, and so we take them, we say, okay, bam, you're the department chair. And, uh, and we're, we're not always good about giving them the tools they Mm -hmm. need. And we, we have started a new chairs development program, uh, brand new chairs. It's a year long program must attend. (laughs) It's a monthly. And a lot of it is just the nuts and bolts of doing the job things that can get them in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, we'll have the lawyers come in and say, you know, this can really get you in trouble. So watch that. Uh, and then the second year it's uh, optional, but encouraged. Mm-hmm. So we give our chairs two years and the best part of it, it gives them time to chat with each other um, and uh, to say, you know, I've got this situation and um uh, and it's not always comfortable, you know, and you have students yeah. coming in with all kinds of issues and how do you direct them? And so uh, we do try to not to throw them in the deep end. Uh, over your years in higher ed, how has that, how has being intentional about faculty and administrative development changed? Because it seems like at UWF, at you and the team there, the culture is really intentional about seeking talent, developing the talent, supporting the talent, evaluating the talent. How has that paradigm shifted over the course of, you know, 20, your 30 plus years in higher ed? You know, I think what has shifted, at least in in my observation, is that we see the need to develop talent. Mm. I think up until that point, we just assumed it was there. That Well, like, you know, if they were good at this, then they will surely be good at that. And, but uh, we've also, I mean, this is not just altruistic. We invest in people. Hmm. Uh, You know, we, we invest, we spend money on people and we want them to do well. It's, it's really expensive. If you have a, if you're churning out leadership or if you're churning out employees and so you want to bring them in and do well. And um, what I really love about where I am is that, I'll hear supervisors say, 
you know, so-and-so is not working out, but I think there's a spot for them over here, not to get rid of them, but where they'll do better. And Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't happen every place, but it should. Yeah. It should. Uh, Some people just aren't cut out for, uh, you know, for certain positions or certain work circumstances and others are not my, I say all this, my niece uh, has a brand new job. She's starting today at another university, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she is going in and I've been trying to tell her she's in an area that is extremely, uh, lots of deadlines, lots of tension. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've been trying to get her ready for that. (laughs) And so uh, we'll see, see how she does. You know, I know this is a common question whenever you travel and speak and, you know, on campus or, you know, really even around the world, people, people want to know, and I, I'm honored to be able to ask this question on the podcast. What do university presidents do? Oh, lots of, <laughs> lots of important <laughs> presidential things. You know, I tell people, this is a great job for someone with a short attention span mm. <laughs> because it changes every minute. Uh, you know, we do have lots of meetings, uh, mm. lots of ribbon cuttings, lots of parties, lots of fundraising, uh, which uh, it, and the parts that I like the best. I like the strategy. I love sitting down. It's like a puzzle. Mm. <laughs> you know, I say, OK, I, we have this much resource. And we got to make this happen with these resources. How are we going to, how are we going to do that? And I, I like that part. I love working with, we work with teams. Mm-hmm. We build teams. Uh, a good president does. And uh, I love working with my team and I love showing up and just doing what needs doing. And it changes from day to day. Uh, and uh, so it, um, it, but mainly, I think sometimes we're the head cheerleader mm-hmm. uh, for our university. We should be the face of the university. If there is a brand, you know, we should be the walking, talking epitome of that brand. And mm-hmm. uh, so uh, it, it's lots of fun. <laughs> and I, I really like it. I was I was telling you when I was a dean, you know, loved it, could do this rest of my life, die happy. Then they made me a provost. And I said, oh, dear Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. Send me one, send me one way or the other. <laughs> but that was the hardest job, and I, I didn't love it. So. What, what was it about being a provost that you just said, no, this is not for Martha? Uh-uh. Well, uh, it, it, you know, it was, I think, because you are detached, you're, you're pulled away, you're working you don't work directly with students. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really don't have faculty to work with so that the richness that attracts us to education isn't there. You're working with deans and mm-hmm. deans can be a hard headed bunch. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then you're stuck with a president. Remember you've got this president who has big ideas mm-hmm. And who's going to parties and coming back with great ideas and saying, oh, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. And, and so and there's the poor provost just sort of squashed in the middle. So mm-hmm. it is uh, I have an awesome provost and uh, he um, 
I'm sure I'm aging him, but we've worked together uh, quite a while. And one of the things that's important, I'm sort of a, as you, if you can't tell, I'm sort of a kick in the door, guns blazing kind of kind of person. He is extremely reflective. He is disciplined. He's a historian. He thinks. <laughs> and I think if I made him make a decision on the spot, he would break out in hives mm-hmm. <laughs> because he, he needs to reflect. Well, between us, we make a pretty good administrator. Uh, he's going to think a little a little longer than I will, yeah. and I'm act a little faster than he will. But between us, it, it works out. And so, probably one of it is the relationship between a president and a provost are the most it's the most important relationship on campus. So. You 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 I like how you said between the two of you. You know you you make a great administrator. There's there's some tension sometimes when we look at leadership roles, as you mentioned yourself, kicking a door, guns blazing, let's make it happen, disposition. Uh, There is sometimes a tendency with younger leaders to, to push back when it is revealed that their particular strength, style, or disposition might not be fitting for this particular circumstance. We may need to take a more reflective, reserved approach for this for this unique scenario. H- how can you lean into those moments where uh, someone who's below you, someone who reports to you, you know, and some, and you know, sometimes people are apprehensive. I need to say something to the boss, but I don't know what their reaction is going to be. How can you lean into those moments where you're getting constructive criticism or, or advice from people who are even lower on the org chart than you? You know that, I think that is an art and a skill that we never stop developing. Mm. Uh, For me, uh, team building is so important. I mean, nobody does anything alone. (laughs) And I, I know myself pretty well. And so I try to make sure I have people around me who are not like me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, and I, our cabinet meetings are safe spaces where it's okay to disagree. Uh, And, and my team not only has the right to, disagree, they have a responsibility to disagree. If they have not spoken up and and we make a decision that's the wrong one that they should have said something about, then they're off the team. I can't have anyone there who mm, won't. Wow. Yeah. Who won't. You know, we hire people because of their abilities to do things. And so they should never feel unsafe to say, you know, to say, you know, have you thought about doing it this way? Uh, or have you thought about the repercussions of this? And what I have found is when we go around my table, if everybody does their job, we we already know what the answer is. Mm. <laughs> I rarely, rarely have to sort of referee. Uh, I may have to ask a few more questions. Mm-hmm. But if the CFO is laying out from a financial point of view, 
and the communication person is laying it out from a public relations point of view and everybody's laying it on the table, we all pretty much know what to do. So, so I try to make sure it is safe and I get irritated if they don't talk to me. Uh, and I, I, my husband, my husband says, you can be scary. And I, I, try, I try not to be scary. And he said, but you can be. So uh, I do try to dial it back and uh, let them, uh, let them say what they have to say. And they're just, you know, we all have personality types. There are people who are just more introverted and, mm-hmm. and, and if I know that about them, then I'm going to pull it out of them. Mm-hmm. I want to make them say something. So, and that's all part of, of uh, being the head of the team. Dr. Saunders, share with me an, an experience. And of course you can change the names and even the location to protect the innocent, but a, but a time in your responsibilities over your career where you were just flat out scared. It was, you were scared to make the decision or the call, or even if you weren't scared, there was a, you paused because you thought about the implication of what's, of what's about to happen. Oh my goodness. Let me think a minute. Um, I could say almost every day there's something. Um, Oh, wow. That's a tough one. You know, of course, most recently, uh, and it certainly made me pause, is this whole COVID response. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we we knew we had to send everybody home in – in March mm-hmm. and our university was, uh, we were, we were well prepped to, for that because we planned for hurricanes down here. And so our just, it's a different disruption, but we're already set up for everybody's got a skedaddle. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't know and what we had to think long and hard about was, okay, how do we handle the summer? How do we handle the fall? And now, how do we handle the spring? No one saw this as lasting this long. We thought it'd be over in a couple of months, like the flu season. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work out that way. And so, so what, so what, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I did, and we'll see if it was the right thing to do. <laughs> I, I, I talked to my faculty. And I didn't, I made no mandates. I said, you know what needs to be taught. Now you tell me how you're going to do this and keep everybody safe. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm telling, I'm giving you all the information I have. And are you want to do this one face to face? You want to do this one online? Because what matters, if nobody's learning anything, there's no point in doing any of it. And so that was a gamble. That was a gamble. And we'll, we'll see how it turns out as far, because students are getting weary of, of being, uh, you know, we're all getting Zoom fatigue. Uh, students want more life. They want more parties. And, um, and I'm holding pretty conservatively uh, on our campus to what makes sense today 
And, you know, so far enrollment has not actually our enrollments up, but we'll see how the spring goes. So, you know, scared isn't it isn't quite the word, but mindful <laughs> and, and being mindful of the cost of being wrong are absolutely uh, there. And that's just that's the most recent one. I'm sure it happens almost daily for me. There's a business cartoon that says, you know, uh, what if we train our people and they leave us? Yeah. And then the other person says, what if we don't and they stay? Yes, that's and, a good one. <laughs> an example from your career where you know, maybe you work with someone and you were you might have been kind of grooming them and, you know, developing your bench talent. And, you know, they had to come to you and say, Dr. Saunders, I have an incredible opportunity. And you gave them your blessing and they went on to to flourish uh, with what they experienced with you. Yeah. I that happens. <laughs> and I always say or when people come and tell me they're thinking about looking at something, my answer is always we want good things for people. We want good things for you. And if this is right for you and your family and your professional, uh, then I'm with you and I'm going to do everything I can to help you get there. Uh, there have been a time or two and one not so long ago where I just wanted to go home and cry. <laughs> I said, no, no, I cannot do with it. If this is a person. But, you know, if, if, you, if you hold them back, that's there's there's no good. And we... But if they leave you, they leave with a, all these good people leave you better than they found you. They always do. So even if you had them for three years or five years, they're, you're better. And so the culture is improved. And, um, you know, so then off they go, but they leave usually leave a pretty good legacy behind. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a dicey one. Uh but one that I think pays off in the long run for the greater good. So. I want to go back to the conversation that you had at that table with the university president. That's the individual said, okay, we've taught you all that we could teach you. It's time for you to go some other places, see the world, learn some different things as, as a leader, how can you recognize what are the things to look for to be able to recognize that in a person? We've they've maxed out their capacity. We we can't really give them anything else. They need to go somewhere else. As much as you would love to keep them, they need to go to somewhere else. And how then as an individual can I recognize maybe when it's time to move on? You know, I think um in this case that you know, I he was he had been other places and had done other things. And he said, you know, we really haven't been able to give you experience and this and that, but I have had occasions where I and and, and I think still we have people we underutilize. They, they have so much more talent than the job we have them in, but we don't have a job for them. You know, there, there's no place for them to grow. And I've had people, they, they express frustration or they say, I want to do more. And those are the ones you, you probably need to say, we would hate to lose you, but for the good of you and your career, 
there, there are bigger things out there for you. The sad part is when they don't take your advice, then they just get disgruntled <laughs> and why didn't the university find a place for me? Uh, and, um, and there, and that does, that's a very sad, uh, sometimes they do it. They, they cannot move on for family reasons, but mostly it's just fear. They're, they don't have enough confidence in themselves to go and be as good as they can be somewhere else. And that's, I'm not sure we can encourage, but I'm, there's a whole lot of just stuff that goes on inside <laughs> that we can't always influence. But it, it, it is very frustrating for me because, you know, you see these people and I'm using, this is just, I'm making up this one, but let's just say we have a department chair who's just super talented. Uh, but we also have a Dean who is super talented and so that dean's not going anywhere, and you don't want the dean to go anywhere. The department chair can't go anywhere, so uh, unless they move on. Uh, there, and I've seen too many people kind of try to create places for them, and it doesn't satisfy either. The beauty of our world is, you know, we all kind of know each other, and there are plenty of opportunities out there. Presidencies are getting kind of wonky, but <laughs> they're going to some strange, some strange directions. But you know, Dr. Saunders, before we we run out of time in this conversation, you, you know, you said being where you're from, there's always a story. Uh, tell tell me a story about a time, maybe something that happened earlier, like childhood, middle school, high school. It was an experience that underscored for you that you can do the hard things, you can do the tough things, you can make a difference in the life of other people? You know, I, I, I've always had a lot of confidence, but I have to tell you why. Uh, my mother was, a, here's the story. My mother was a nurse. She was a registered nurse uh, and she, this was in a time before ICUs. So if people were really sick, they had what they call round the clock nurses. And she was very good at what she did. She was a good nurse. And so she would get a case and she would stay with that seven days a week for as long as that patient needed her. And some cases went on for months and so the, and so my, you know, I kind of raised myself, <laughs> you know, cause she was working seven days a week. My dad worked in the local uh, factory and she wouldn't, and, and she would finally finish a case. And the next day they would call her for another one. And because we didn't have a lot of money, she really felt like she couldn't not, she, she was afraid not to, to, to turn down a case. So that kind of the, so that, so I always just, I figured things out. I figured things out for myself. And uh, and it's not that I was feral, but close. <laughs> you know, my, my sister's quite a bit older than I am. So I, I really didn't have anybody around. So I became fiercely independent. And I, and I think um, that 
there's that also is a double-edged sword because when you are that independent, you don't ask for help. And that in my career, the part that I wish I had done is ask for help more often because I always thought I had to figure it out myself because there was no one around. So I think I always knew I could make a difference because, you know, because I did. (laughs) And so, so, uh, and and had, you know, I just felt like I was surrounded by people who encouraged me. Uh, I, I can tell you, I am almost never the smartest, maybe never the smartest person in the room, (laughs) but I, I, I'm almost always the boss. <laughs> and so there there's, I had people around that encourage me. Um, I care about what I'm doing. I care about taking care of the people that work with me. And uh, it, it's, it, uh, if I don't make a difference, I hope people like you or someone will tell me it's time to pack it in Martha <laughs> and, and uh, go sit down. As you look out at the university uh, for the for the next several years and the in the close in the close future uh, for you and for the school, what are, what are you the most excited about as you look towards the future? Oh, there is there's I think I'm excited about the opportunity for innovation. You know this this COVID crisis has forced us to do things we probably should have done anyway. Uh, it's made some of us, it's dragged us kicking and screaming into technology. Uh, it has made us much more efficient with our time. And so I think we're going to see an awful lot of innovation um, in how we deliver our our coursework. Uh, I do have to remind my Dean, sometimes I say, you know, God did not ordain the 16-week semester. It is not chiseled in a tablet anywhere. You can do an eight-week one. You can do a four-week one. You can do all kinds of things as long as the the work is getting done. And so I also am seeing our students are partnering with us better. You know, we're all, we, when all of this hit, we're kind of all in the same boat. And it's not, it's been hard on the students, uh, harder than anyone would think. You'd think, oh, these young folks, they, they know all about smartphones and stuff. They'll be fine. They're not fine. It's been hard for them. And so what I'm teaching a class this semester and what I've found, my, my students are saying, okay, Dr. Saunders, we don't want you to do it this way. Can we do it another way? You know, and so they're engaged in their own education, and that's different. That's and I think that's a good thing. We're going to see more what I call partnerships between the learner and the teacher. Well, we're all learners, but the teacher and the student, and uh, I think that's exciting. Uh, you know, you you hear talk of you know the degree looking differently and that will probably evolve. We'll see more stacking of credentials in certain areas uh, and uh, that will evolve. But I think the, the real catalyst in there is this, this uh, difference in the relationship between in learning, the learning relationship. And I'm pretty excited about that. I like to watch, watch that go. Uh, 
And I think people are also very receptive to change now. Yeah, you probably know universities don't change real fast. <laughs> so, uh, but but uh, this revolution has changed us and has made us ripe. And I'm excited about that. I know, uh, Dr. Saunders, you're probably busier than I can imagine. Um, but if I'm listening to this as maybe a young faculty member or a young administrator and I have a, a question or I want to read more about what you're doing in your context. Is, is there a way, a best way to to just follow you to track your work? Is it LinkedIn? Sure. Is it Twitter? What's the best way? I'm on all of them. Uh, and uh, but Dr. M.D. Saunders uh, on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and uh, all those things. But if you can't if that's not easy for them, uh, just go to uwf.edu, go to the president's page. There's a link to my page. I mean, there's a link to me and, and send me an email and I'm happy to respond. I love to do that. I'll put all of those in the show links so that people can just be one click away and they can reach out and connect with you. My guest today has been Dr. Martha Saunders, president of the University of West Florida. Dr. Saunders, thanks for being my guest today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Great conversation with Dr. Martha Saunders from the University of West Florida. I loved hearing her story and about the experience of having a senior leader pour into her and give her some guidance and direction that paid dividends and ultimately led to her position and influence that she has today. And there's something incredible about the power of pouring into and guiding other people. It always pays dividends for you in the long run. I want to encourage you to begin to look around you for people that you can pour into and guide and mentor. Contact information for Dr. Saunders is in the show notes so that you can be one click away and you can reach out to her. Listen, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.